0: This week on Weather Geeks, I'm joined by Dr. Greg Forbes of the Weather Channel. He has alerted the public to more tornado warnings than any other human being on the planet, saving lives every year. Today, Dr. Forbes talks about his early career working with Dr. Ted Fujita and his journey to the Weather Channel. What are some of his most memorable moments and what we can do better as a community to warn the public and what will the future bring? All that and more from the storm master himself, Dr. Greg Forbes. Thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast.
1: My pleasure, Marshall.
0: So this is a new format and we're talking all about weather, geeking out, and we thought it would be appropriate to have one of the most recognizable figures at the Weather Channel to help us kick off the podcast. Thanks. I look forward to it. So I know you and have known you for many years as a former professor at, the, at, at, Penn, at Penn, State Penn State University. Uh, tell us a little bit before we get to your Penn State career about how you got interested in weather. Well, I got first interested
1: in weather as a seventh grade student. We had a, a teacher who I think had been a, an observer in the Navy, and so when he was brought in his, his first year there at Mountain View Elementary School in La Trobe, Pennsylvania, he taught a module on meteorology or on weather. and. Uh, he gave us maps and we plotted down the the weather observations, surface observations, and then we drew some isobars. So I thought, wow, this is pretty, pretty exciting. Weather is a real science. At that time... Way back in the uh, that would have been what 1963 or something sure. like that. You still had people on the air giving weather that were like Bozo the Clown <laughs> or you know a very non meteorological. So it wasn't people.
0: necessarily scientific. That's right. It, it, wasn't was, that it was presented. It was
1: almost a joke. It was a sort of the comic relief sometimes time of day. But this showed me that. Weather was a real science, uh, and, and I was fortunate. The, the Pittsburgh TV market had Joe Dinardo and Bob Kudzma. They were actually r- real meteorologists on air. Kind of a, an, a, you know, a progressive TV market there in terms of having real meteorologists. So by watching them, by by this class, I thought, wow, meteorology is a real science. I kind of knew I wanted to be so- a scientist at that point. But, you know, seventh graders, what do you know? You know, there's biology, there's chemistry, sure. there's geology. Exactly. I didn't think I was too much into the the, the gory side of biology and chemistry. You know, and I dissecting everybody, frogs. Everybody, exactly, exactly. Everybody had already... In, you know, discovered so many chemical uh, things. and geology, you could make a forecast of an earthquake, but things go so slow there. You might be dead before you knew whether you were right or wrong. But, hey, weather, you could make a forecast and then see the next day if you're right or wrong. And besides which, I lived out in the country, and at those times... Uh, if it was a sunny day, my mother would wash clothes and then hang the clothes out to dry on a clothesline out in our backyard. So, by, if you by making weather forecasts, you could actually, as I saw it, you could help people plan their daily lives. So. Uh, that's what I want to be, yeah. and uh, and I was lucky enough to live in Pennsylvania. I had world-class meteorological institute, Penn State University. Uh, I knew that it was a tough school to get in, so my task in high school was to just get good enough grades and get good enough scores on the SAT to be able to get into Penn State.
0: So you were, you know, as, as former president of AMS, one of the things we talked about and surveyed our membership is that many people— in our field, get interested around middle school. So you yeah. kind of are the prototypical. I was AHS, right I in that mold. Yeah. yeah so and so, uh, like like me, I know when I was I got interested in around sixth grade and started sort of. I grew up in the south, so ended up at Florida State University because it was fairly close to the Atlanta area where I grew up. So mm-hmm. sounds like in some ways we have very similar very stories similar in terms yeah. of our trajectories, kind of going off to schools very near at least where we grew up. Exactly. Yeah. So th- was Penn State your only option? Well, I was.
1: We, we didn't have a whole lot of money, so to, to be going in-state was kind of the only option. And, and Penn State really was the only school in, in Pennsylvania at that time that was really offering a degree, degree in meteorology. And it's and, a very
0: good program. And fortunately,
1: well. it was probably the arguably the world's best for producing weather forecasts.
0: Absolutely. So it certainly made sense for you. Uh, now, fast forward, no Penn State, undergraduate degree. Yes. Uh, what about your graduate work?
1: Well then I went to the University of Chicago after I got my bachelor's degree at Penn State because while I was at uh, Penn State we had uh, learned uh, that uh, learned of the work of Dr. Fujita at the University of Chicago that he I was very enthralled with his work on mesoanalysis the very uh, innovative use of surface data to uh, draw uh, analyses of the substructure of squall lines and and even supercell thunderstorms uh, at that time. Plus, he had just invented the, the Fujita scale and was beginning to look at the substructure of tornadoes and the variation between one tornado and the next. Uh, so I thought, wow, this is pretty exciting stuff. And he and also learned more about that there was actually a branch of the what now is called the National Weather Service, we would call it the Storm Prediction Center, that is making severe weather forecasts and then issuing the severe thunderstorm and tornado watches. So I thought, ah, I can specialize. I can not just help people with their daily lives, but I'll go and get a master's degree and then go try to get a job at the Storm Prediction Center, and I can maybe help save some lives. uh, So I was lucky enough, Dr. Fujita was uh, able to Get financial aid, another uh, uh, grant, and uh, it was kind of a a, uh, a tense time because I had had uh, some offers from other schools, but I was still waiting for my top choice. Right. And uh, but it, it finally came through, and so off I went.
0: So, uh, if you if you I know many people, particularly if you're listening to this podcast, probably love weather and are familiar with the Enhanced Fujita scale that we use today. Um, but take a moment and just Google or look up Dr. Ted Fujita and his many contributions to the field of meteorology because they're amazing. I think people don't realize the the scope of what he, he did in the field.
1: Yeah, and in particular for the storm chasers out there, that some of the terms that we use, tail clouds, collar clouds, wall clouds uh all sorts of uh, weather phenomena he t- coined those terms in in the uh, 50s right. based upon the study of the Fargo the tornado that hit Fargo North Dakota right. and so uh, uh, yeah he was fundamentally in a lot of severe weather observational and and uh, diagnostic type meteorology and then along came the satellite era and he was critical in order to be able to rectify the satellite photographs and that means to be able to take what is just sort of this distorted view of the spherical earth and plot that onto weather maps with with the you know county and state outlines on it and so on he was very critical to the early development of that type of thing so uh, And and then he went on to discover or at least understand that there were microbursts, these very narrow, intense downdrafts that occur uh, and were causing. Catastrophic commercial airline accidents.
0: Yeah, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So, right, I, I grew up in, in in an era where there were a lot of aircraft incidents related to microbursts, and Fujita was sort of instrumental in sort of understanding those. Why do we not hear as much about microbursts now?
1: Well, it, it's we don't hear about the microburst deaths now uh, because of the technology transition that took place, there were a series of field projects to uh, make measurements and go out and understand the, the nature of these microbursts. Uh, one in 1978 in the Illinois area. I was part of setting up that program. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Is, another... Was that, Jaws that was, was Nimrod. Nimrod, mm-hmm. yes. Okay. The Northern Illinois or the National Intensive Meteorological Research on Downbursts right. or Downdrafts, I guess, Absolutely. as we called it. There was another in 1982 in uh, the Denver, Colorado area. And then in 1986, down in uh, in Alabama, the Huntsville area, I was uh, part of that uh, that field project. Uh, that one by, was by the missed, way, microbursts micro, in severe thunderstorms. And
0: by the way, you're, you're hearing Greg and I talk about uh, these field campaigns. Um, a, a lot of people know Dr. Forbes for his uh, sort of operational and broadcast warnings of severe weather. But as a researcher, we're both engaged in these projects. And oftentimes what we know about uh weather processes comes from field campaigns where scientists are funded by national organizations, the government, National Science Foundation, to go out and intensely study these processes.
1: Exactly. And it was the National Science Foundation, uh, NASA, and the FAA was heavily involved. There was some additional field projects that the FAA sponsored. Uh, and as a result of this, it was learned that you could recognize these microburst structures using Doppler radar. Uh, and... As well as by having surface observations uh, that would begin to show rapid wind shifts and pressure changes right at the airport. And so as a consequence, uh, the FAA, the National Weather Service, especially the FAA, they deployed sensors. Uh, wind shear alert systems around the airports.
0: Now, and, and what exactly were those? Were they little systems of anemometers? They're
1: basically anemometers and pressure sensors that were looking for rapid wind shifts and pressure changes that would indicate uh, very sudden these sudden wind shifts in these microbursts. The winds come down, the strong rain or hail-cooled air comes down to the ground, and then fans out uh, in a uh, in a fan outspreading pattern, and so you can go. Uh, from a say a, a crosswind in one direction on a runway to one that's in the opposite direction, or a headwind or a tailwind, and those kind of very sudden shifts of the wind are very crucial to especially the landing portions of an aircraft because they're just gliding in, and if they go from a tail from a headwind where they're getting sort of some extra lift, then into a tailwind and they suddenly lose the lift, they they sink. The it's it depends on the speed of the wind going across the wing. Uh, and a lot of that a portion of that is due to the the airflow uh, from the surface winds or the near surface winds. So if they change, the lift on the aircraft changes, and the aircraft can either be pushed up above its intended uh, descent path or it can be smacked down to the ground and that latter was was happening. Uh, 1975 at JFK was the one that led Fujita to the beginning investigations of the of the microburst. We had also done a lot of damage surveys. We were at that time looking for tor- looking at the structure of tornadoes, but occasionally we would see these fan out type patterns in the in the crop patterns or the tree patterns, and so uh, they reminded Dr. Fujita of the outflow pattern that he had seen. After the uh, atomic bomb blast in native, the damage in in uh, the Nagasaki in particular, yes, uh, and so it got him to be thinking of the downburst and the outflow from from those, uh, and so he was able to go back and sort of find other kind of conceptual models to to go along with this microburst. Uh, he proposed that they existed he was able to get grants then he was able to then convince the the um, you know government agencies to to fund fund the grants and and that led to a technology transition then now all pilots all pilots are given microburst uh, awareness and avoidance training twice a year. Wow! In term and so the pilots know visually what microbursts look like—these downward rain shafts—and they fan out with sort of feet coming out one side with or little, both cr- sides. Curls. Yeah, with little sometimes curls, especially uh, yeah. sometimes on the leading edge of yeah, those. Exactly. But we sort of call them rain feet. The, the rain tends to come down straight unless the wind blows it. And if if those rain shafts start angling, that means there's a, there's a horizontal wind pushing it away from the vertical, and the pilots are taught to recognize that. They use the windshield alert systems, and there are special uh, terminal Doppler weather radars. In addition to the ones that the National Weather Service puts out that cover the country, there are a more localized coverage terminal Doppler radars that are put out at most of the major airports across the country, and they really give high resolution on these low levels, uh, time and spatial resolution at, at these low levels to protect the airports
0: from these microbursts. And thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm joined by Dr. Greg Forbes, Storm Master G, as some <laughs> know him, here at the Weather Channel's so a severe weather expert. And uh, we're digging into some of uh, Greg's early career, and we are talking about your time at the University of Chicago studying under Professor uh, Fujita, Dr. Fujita, a very well-known colleague. Um, so moving on. Sort of what did you end up working on as for your own doctoral work, and then how has that uh, sort of translated in your professional career?
1: I worked on scales of motions associated with tornadoes, anywhere from the tornado itself up going upscale to the – kind of thunderstorms that produced them. In particular, I was looking at the kind of thunderstorms that produced the 1974 tornado super outbreak that happened while I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. We went out and surveyed the damage from all of the tornadoes. I was heavily involved in that, mapped it out, mapped out the Fujita scales along the way. And at that time, we didn't have Doppler radar. And so I wanted to Look at from the biggest documented tornado outbreak and a big data set what did the radar echoes look like? And you know, they were these kidney bean shaped storms and occasionally hook echoes. And so, I did some research along that line to and and published that to try to help forecasters better use the, the kind of coarse data that we had at that time and then downscale. Dr. Vegeta had proposed that tornadoes sometimes had substructures that were called suction vortices. Yes,
0: which is what can sometimes explain the randomized damage patterns in some places, right?
1: Yeah, these these are tornadoes within a tornado, so to speak, and they revolve kind of like a merry-go-round about the parent tornado. And they have their own rotation, so that could be 50 to 100 mile per hour. They have their own low pressure, their own inflow, their own upward motions, and so if you get hit by one of those, you get a second, more intense wham than you just got from the the parent tornado. And so the winds could be 50, 100 mile per hour stronger. But some of this can explain the the so-called skipping nature of tornadoes. They don't really skip, but not every spot gets hit one to by one of these suction vortices. So one house can be hit. The one across the street might be missed. These are not very large features.
0: Exactly. And so you've been a very strong contributor to the peer review and scholarly literature. And I think it's important for our Weather Geeks podcast listeners to understand that because, again, I think some are familiar with some aspects of your career. But those of us that really have sort of been around this for a while, um, uh, just go dig into some of the literature. Do, go to something called Google Scholar and take a look at some of Dr. Forbes' uh, scholarly work there, I think you'll be uh, interested. Now, you mentioned the Fujita scale. I want to talk about the Fujita scale because I think I mean we now use the enhanced Fujita scale or the EF scale. Yeah. Um, talk about what the Fujita scale is. Is it a pre or post scale assessment? Because I think people are familiar with mm-hmm. the Saffir-Simpson scale and hurricanes. So, talk about what the Fujita scale is. How do we come up with a number, and why it was changed to the enhanced Fujita scale?
1: The Fujita scale is a scale to Estimate the intensity or the wind speeds of tornadoes, but it's based upon the damage and it's assigned after the fact. We don't really have real-time measurements of the winds in the ongoing tornado. Once in a while, we'll have a mobile Doppler radar it gets close enough that it can see it, but even there, they're not measuring right at the rooftop level. They're usually much higher. So. Um, We don't have the unlike the Saffir-Simpson scale where we the hurricanes are big enough and we send in aircraft we we pretty much know what the peak wind speed is we don't know that for tornadoes in real time so
0: do do you think we need some type of real time assessment capability it
1: would well I think it would be good if we improved our ability to to detect and to warn. Of what's probably a weak tornado versus could be a strong or violent tornado, and we have some ability to do that. Uh, that kind of thing, I think we need, but kind of hard to get. It's, it's hard Doppler to have mobile, enough mobile up <laughs> sure. radars to catch every one of the twelve hundred tornadoes per year. Sure. But. Um, it's assigned after the fact. The National Weather Service uh, sends teams out, or they've also trained the emergency managers in some cases if they can't go out to to give them an assessment. And it's based upon the the location of the worst damage, the strongest damage that the tornado has done. So there are, there may be, if it's an EF-5 tornado, there may be one or two blocks that have actually had EF-5, and then out of a 30-mile-long path and a mile wide that most of the places within that tornado had weaker uh, intensities. The the tornado intensity varies by position in the tornado, and by time along the, the tornado track. I, I guess you ask also why, about its evolution. Why did
0: it evolve to an enhanced? For, uh, the,
1: the Fujita scale, Dr. Fujita proposed in, in 1971, and then was implemented by the National Weather Service in uh, uh, either 1972 or 1973. And they began to use that uh, on a to, on a real-time basis operationally, but around that same time, especially in 1974, with a super outbreak that hit so many uh, schools and did some such major damage, uh, structural engineers began to get more and more interested in the the kind of wind speeds that were proposed to go along with the Fujita scale. The For example, the Fujita scale said that if if a home is totally destroyed and broken into bits and totally gone into wee little tiny pieces off of its foundation, that's going to be a F5. That could be as high as 318 miles per hour, over 260 miles per hour. And the engineer says, "Whoa, the building codes in most of the country are 75, 90 mile per hour. It's once you, and that's to hold the roof on. Once you blow the roof off, it doesn't take winds getting too much higher than that to knock the walls down and start break, you know, cascade of failure. And so they said those speeds for the for the three and four and five range are too high." And they So they did their research over the, the next few decades and gradually began to convince meteorologists that they were correct, that the original Fujita scale, as, as smart as Dr. Fujita was, he didn't have a whole lot of quantitative basis sure. for those... If it did this damage, it meant those wind speeds. He didn't have a whole. It was it was great for sort of assigning the categories based upon the gradation of damage, but the wind speed at parts of it were were a little bit off in some ways. And so finally, then uh, a group of Texas Tech University organized a group of combined meteorologists. I was one of them, and structural engineers, and we got together and reviewed the engineering evidence and and then came together, each one of us individually, uh, for all sorts of categories of damage to different types of structures. There's more than 20 of those now that are used in the assessment process. what did we think our best estimate the wind speed needed to cause that kind of damage and then they they combined the the values and and came up with a, an average and then a and a range of values for for each particular type of damage and now the national weather service is is armed with uh, i guess it 's like an iPad that they go out and are able to look at the damage look up the the type of structure involved and and use just those, kind of the, pop it in there. Yeah, just yeah. pop pop in there what they saw, and and uh, that gives a certain wind speed for that spot, and then they go to the next spot, and whichever spot gets the highest value, that gets the highest EF scale.
0: Now, I I know when I was uh, either AMS president or on the council, there was uh, t- colleagues like Tim Marshall and some of the other folks out there, some folks at the, uh, with the Civil Engineering Society. There's kind of some new activity, and I don't know how much you're aware of this, to sort of even up upgrade or update our capacity even more are you aware of any of this?
1: I I certainly am and Tim Marshall was a key member of that original panel along with myself that came up with the enhanced vegeta scale but the enhanced vegeta scale was was intended to be something that could be open ended and added to and it was recognized that there were a lot of structures the Thing, you know, Trees needed to be included, different kinds of trees, because a lot of times the tornado is just going through a forest. It doesn't hit any homes or other kind of buildings. You need to have some way of assigning the enhanced Fujita scale. A lot of times it's going through farmland. The main thing that gets hit there are these irrigation systems, the pivot systems. So what about those? What about power poles uh, and so on and so uh, the enhanced Vegeta scale being uh, enhanced yet again, so it's
0: it's scalable to, and so, so yeah, you, yeah, to
1: to add addition of these damage types, the damage descriptors, uh, and then uh, estimate wind speeds on that basis.
0: Now, what what about are there any efforts now? I, I thought I read somewhere at one point where there um, there's some sort of nuances between sort of what some of the mobile Doppler radar systems are measuring versus some of the enhanced Vegeta. I mean, is, are there kind of merging of those activities? There are
1: issues about that. Right now, the National Weather Service policy is that because mobile Doppler radar measurements are only made on a very few tornadoes, uh, that to get a more uniform assessment, the enhanced Vegeta scale should continue to be assigned on the basis of damage. Now, there is, though, a panel that's investigating. The possibility, you know, you want to come up with the best answer, right. and so the uh, you get these kind of tornadoes where maybe the strongest part of the tornado d- didn't happen to be hitting the area where the structures were, and so the mobile Doppler radars, if they made measurements there, might know that you had an EF five tornado in reality, as opposed to the damage only showing an EF three. So there's there is is there is a panel that has been commissioned to try to. Investigate that issue, and and should you know what should the National Weather Service do to to, to rectify
0: that? Thank you for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Dr. Greg Forbes here at the Weather Channel uh, about his career and severe weather. And, I, and now I want to transition a little bit. Um, so you were a professor at Penn State for many years but you made this transition to the Weather Channel. Yeah. How, did, how, how does that happen? And, I, and frankly, I have some insight on it, too, because I'm, I'm a professor at the University of Georgia, but I've been involved in TV with Weather Geeks and whatnot, and there are some colleagues that see that as sort of a monumental jump. I, I don't necessarily see it that way. What, what are your thoughts, and how did it evolve for you?
1: Well, I, yeah, I was a, on the faculty at Penn State Department of Meteorology for 21 years, and so I'll sort of backtrack and give you sort of the whole story to that. Uh, th- I think I had said that I had intended to go and get a master's degree at the University of Chicago and then go off to be a severe weather forecaster, but studying with Dr. Fujita and, and then a m- person of that stature saying that they you should stay and continue doing research and get your PhD—that's uh, you know that's what you do. It was so exciting, flying in Learjet to look at thunderstorm tops, doing all this. Uh, damage surveying, being right there every day, Dr. Vegeta pulling me into his office saying, look, look, what do you think of this idea? This is what I was working on last night. That's just too exciting. And so I got a PhD, but I sort of overeducated myself at that point or overqualified myself at that point to be a line forecaster in the Storm Prediction Center. So that sort of headed me off into academia, and I was fortunate enough to, to land what was initially a uh, a non-tenure faculty position at Penn State, and then I got into a tenure spot and, and got tenure. But as the years went by, uh, and I was getting older, I, I figured I'd probably just my chance was gone to actually ever go and save lives and be an operational severe weather forecaster. But then all of a sudden, along came this offer from the Weather Channel. They had so did they just
0: approach you? Or they they came to you with this offer? Or?
1: Yeah, they uh, they. There was a lot of my graduates, the students, that had come to work for the Weather Channel. And so they let me know that the Weather Channel was expanding its severe weather team. They already had had a hurricane expert. They had hired a second. Now they had hired a winter weather expert. And they wanted now to hire a, a severe weather expert, especially uh, then right after the May 3rd, 1999, the Norman, the Moore tornado. Right. Uh, hit uh that really put the the you know the priority to that and so right after that they they contacted me they and a number of other people and and uh uh, I was uh, then hired as the severe weather expert at the Weather Channel. So
0: you you really did. This is an interesting story and something I didn't know. Just uh, this, you really did kind of circle back to sort of what your really initial sort of goal and impetus was in this field.
1: Yeah, I did. I uh, my original career goal was to you know, once I learned that there was actually forecasting of severe weather, I I wanted to do that and you know, with the idea of saving lives. So uh, I was able to, to circle back and, and get a job doing that. I had never planned to be on television. Uh, yeah, it's and,
0: likewise.
1: <laughs> and uh, uh, and it was qu- quite a change going from being a professor and doing the kind of things that faculty do to suddenly, in particular, trying in these outbreaks, trying to cover many states and cover the, you know, so many storms and so many warnings coming out. Initially, when I got to the Weather Channel, the the technology was not as high as it is now and uh, so we were literally ripping off of a comp- off a printer or the the sheets of warnings were coming off of a printer and then trying to to read those and figure out which storm they were talking about on sh- and show it to the viewers on radar, and it was, I sort of felt like if you've watched the I Love Lucy show, the episode <laughs> where the candy is coming faster and faster down the conveyor belt. Some days felt like that, and I thought to myself, "Oh my goodness, what have I got myself you yourself into, into here?" Into,
0: Greg? Well, but you've you've mastered it, and I think that's why we call you Storm Master. <laughs> but uh, in all seriousness. Um, You've you've pioneered things like the Torcon, and tell you know. Let's be honest. There's some people that are critical of the Torcon. I mean, I think there are people that see the value of why you're doing it. Tell us about the Torcon and why you do it. We
1: started doing uh, the Torcon forecasting in 2009. At that point, the Weather Channel had decided that it was going to be a part of Vortex. These one a field project to look at. Uh, well, Vortex Two, I should say, a uh, field project to. Uh, study tornadoes out in the central part of the United States, we are going to have Mike Bettis embedded with some of the mobile Doppler radar teams to uh, follow the storms that way and have me back in the studio. And so we came up with the idea of, well, uh, can we give some f- feeling to the public of the likelihood that Vortex-2 is going to get a tornado? today, or if, depending on where they went, what the likelihood was. And we went then beyond that. Well, this would be pretty valuable from the, for the public. Uh, we took away the factor of the, the terrain and trees and things like that, whether or not you'll be able to see it and just try to come up with a scale of the likelihood that the tornado would be there. Uh, and uh, it's somewhat empirical. We're using computer model and, and other on, on the day of the observed conditions of wind shear and instability and upper air forcing and so on and, and experience to, to try to come up with an estimate of the likelihood of a tornado within 50 miles of of you know various locations it's not perfect but well,
0: well what forecast and, and, yeah, and diagnostic exactly. really is
1: exactly but the idea there and most of the public i think understands that we came up with a 10 point scale for it Because so many uh, scales, rating scales that the public was familiar with, anywhere from the Olympics to sort of game shows, you know, went on a zero to 10 scale, much more comfortable with than probabilities. And so, although you can convert Torcon to a probability just by multiplying it by 10, but...
0: Um, yeah, but well we know from even our experience with precipitation forecasts that the public often struggles with things like probability.
1: Yeah, they do. They, they do indeed. Uh, and uh, so, but, you know, a big part of our motivation there was that there are different days of, and degrees of tornado risk. There are some of these days that have big outbreaks likely for tornadoes. And then there are other days that, you know, well, there might be a tornado or two. Um, But, you know, each day gets sort of a forecast. There could be severe thunderstorms. You get tornado watches once in a while, once in a rare occasion, you get a uh, a uh, particularly dangerous situation type tornado watch but oh, we just thought that torcon would be a way to alert the public to the degrees of danger a little bit ahead of time sometimes many days ahead of time that there's going to be one of these days coming up that there could be a lot of tornadoes or at least a high density of tornadoes no
0: but now I've, critics and I, I mean i don't think there are a lot of critics but i have heard some critics that say well the National Weather Service or NOAA has the tornado significant parameter, and does it create confusion between sort of your TORCON that maybe says something different than TSP, but I'm, I'm sensing that your product was developed more for them. I don't think my aunt's going to be looking at the tornado significant, significant parameter. So.
1: That's correct. And, and the Storm Prediction Center does issue, and they have for the day of, they don't have it for future days, but for the day of, they have a, a, a tornado parameter. They developed that for a 25-mile radius, and so their numbers come up pretty small. Even on a very big risk day, their biggest big values on of that are going to be 10 or 15 percent, and that doesn't sound very high. Especially, you know, the public, if they're using probabilities, you know, 30 percent is sort of what the threshold they think of most of the time for whether or not it's going to rain. So. I intentionally made my area bigger, 50 miles instead of 25 miles, so that, you know, if I was just using their values without any of my own skill, I would just take their values and multiply it by four. And so their 10% would be 40% or a TORCON four. um, So that I came up, I tried to come up with a, a formulation, a procedure that would give values that... You know, we're we're more representative, I thought, of of the danger and and give values more in line with sort of the the precipitation probabilities and and sort of the thresholds for that that the public had come to come to recognize.
0: Now, speaking of your forecast, talking with Greg Forbes, Weather Channel, what is your forecast procedure like? We've got a day that looks like it's going to be severe. Um, What's your process as soon as you walk into the door here at the Weather Channel?
1: Sometimes I'm making these forecasts from home nowadays, nice. also, sure. uh, and uh, we also have some uh, forecasters behind the scenes that are u- updating the the Torcon forecast during the night time, and then I'll do another uh, late morning update of the forecasts. Um, so my my procedure is to uh, I, I'm looking at looking at computer models. Well, if it's the day of, I'm looking at observations of the surface and. And the soundings that we have to see how the winds change, turn an increase in speed with, uh, as we go upward. Wind shear. Wind shear, as we call it, especially the lowest one kilometer or the lowest 3,000 feet, the, the cloud base to the ground. That seems to be the most critical layer where that wind shear gets converted into tornado or at least low-level portion of the supercell thunderstorm, the rotation that then can produce a tornado. I'll be looking at uh, the model soundings that I can see the vertical structure and the observed stru- soundings on the day of so that I can see the, uh, the, the structure of that wind shear and, and the instability. You need to have instability down pretty low so that the updraft gets going down near cloud base. Uh, if, if all of, a lot of people look at CAPE, the convective available potential energy, which is sort of a integrated or an accumulated measure of the instability in the storm, but most of that is way up high, up in twenty thousand foot levels so you, and, so you and like, higher.
0: Do you, so you like so you like like SB cape, surface based cape. I,
1: I look at surface based cape, but still I'm looking at in additional details of is there any inst- Is that how much of that is down below three kilometers, down below ten thousand feet, down in the low portion of the storm? Uh, because the, the rest of the cape goes into making big hailstones aloft, but doesn't necessarily go into and, it, and making rotating storms aloft, but doesn't necessarily go into the processes down near the bottom of the storm that might make tornadoes. Uh, I'm also looking at very detailed the day of or even, or the next day looking at very high resolution computer models, storm resolving models that can actually predict pretty realistically, uh, the structure of storms, and is it going to be lines, is it going to be supercells?
0: These are game-changing They really are. It HRR really are. is, yeah. Others, yeah.
1: It really is. The, uh, the ability, that they don't always get it exactly right in the right county or the, the right, they might be off an hour or two, but it certainly gives you a lot more information uh, about the, the likelihood of these supercell and tornado-producing structures. And we can look at... Computer parameters like the predicted significant tornado parameter and, and things like that or storm uh, hel- Holicity, helicities yeah. uh, that um, that uh, that and track those along and if I see a lot of bullseyes of those in the computer models of those uh, tornado parameters. Uh, then that contributes to raising the torque on for for those
0: areas of, of the state yeah so yeah so the, very interesting to, to hear some of the insight from one of the sort of best minds in severe weather forecasting that we frankly have so um, I mean this is this is what why i 'm so excited about this podcast because we can really dive deep into this uh, I want to get your thoughts on where we are as an enterprise on severe weather forecasting uh, how are we doing what do we need to do better and and do you think there is a such thing as too much lead time for tornadoes?
1: Well, we certainly are doing real well when you put it in the big picture of things. The Back in the, you know, if you go back just a few decades, we, we had, uh, you know, some skill in predicting severe weather, but now we've, we were able to predict future radar and show where the storms are going to be and who's going to get hit worst with a pretty high degree of accuracy and our computer models have got, gotten good enough that we can predict on, you know, the worst outbreak days, five maybe even longer days in advance. So uh, the general skill is pretty good. We still have issues. We can see in real time these supercell thunderstorms with pretty strong rotation, but our radars are sometimes measuring well above cloud base. So we're not sure sometimes if the uh, you know if there's actually a tornado on the ground, but we've improved there also. Uh, a few years back, the National Weather Service upgraded their Doppler radars to include what we call the dual pole uh, capabilities, and that has allowed us to see.
0: A couple of things better than we did now and before before you continue your thought dual pole so it's really sending out a pulse that has a horizontally and a vertically polarized sort of uh, microwave signal going from the radar just to get a little technical for you and so it allows us to see some things about orientation of the drops and their sizes and those types of things
1: yeah and and, and essentially what happens is the electrical energy the electrical waves that go out that sort of part of the time oscillate horizontally, and part of the time they oscillate vertically. And so uh, while they're oscillating vertically, uh, they are uh, sometimes seeing bigger cross-sections of rain... Uh, uh, Well, well, I'm sorry. When they're oscillating horizontally, the raindrops fall as sort of like Hamburg buns. And so when they're oscillating horizontally, they get a little bit bigger cross-section than when they're oscillating vertically, and you're able to detect then the difference between squashed hamburger bun raindrops versus more spherical hailstones. Hailstones. So hail detection has gone way up. And by looking at the size and shape of those raindrops, the detection of rainfall rates has improved also. But then there's especially another parameter that uh, looks at how these measurements are changing. We, the, the thing that we see and we see is like the current radar scan really consists of about 30 quick pulses that have gone out uh, combined into one return that we see as the radar intensity or the radar velocity, but it's a bit of an average. The What is used now is the variation between those 30 pulses, and if they look a lot different, the correlation coefficient, in other words, how consistent are they? If that correlation coefficient is low, it means that the objects in the beam are sort of tumbling, changing shape, changing orientation. It could be leaves from trees that have been torn up by a tornado. It could be debris, objects from homes. And so when we see these low correlations in an area that has high velocity, a tornado vortex signature in the velocity pattern... We're able to say, ah, with high confidence, ah, there's a tornado in progress. Yeah, and, de- and sometimes, <laughs> uh, yeah, instead of just a debris ball on the reflectivity, uh, you know, sometimes we can see these debris signatures uh, that... Even if there's no not one of these reflectivity high return debris balls and and so able to see that a tornado is very likely in progress and it's a destructive tornado without necessarily having and sometimes before uh, having someone actually on the ground verify that damage has been or is being done so it it really is it allows us to raise the urgency as broadcasters about you really need to be seeking shelter. There's a tornado in progress here, folks.
0: Yeah. Uh, we're, we're kind of running low on our time here. It's been an amazing discussion. I hope you've enjoyed it with Dr. Greg Forrest. But I do want to get your thoughts on some the, what, what you feel is an ideal lead time for severe weather, particularly tornado, or is there such a thing? Because some people suggested you what know, we're, we're about 13, 14 minutes lead time now on average, and some people suggest that we need more, and I've seen some discussions that, well, too much will make people complacent. So I want to get your thoughts on that And then your final thoughts on what we can just you think we need to be doing better.
1: This lead time question is is a tough one because in recent years with the rapid advent of mobile devices, so many people now are getting their tornado warnings on mobile devices that they have with them constantly, as opposed to in the past. You had to be at home. You had to be uh, watching television, watching or, you or, or, you in know, in or or you had, yeah, scroll or you had to have a, a, some kind of weather radio. Sure. And so you worried that the likelihood that the warning was getting to people was pretty low. It's still not a hundred percent. But with social media, people calling their friends and and combined with these mobile devices, uh, I think we're. You don't have sort of the lag between the warning being issued and then somebody just stumbling across that there is a warning. It, I think people are probably getting the warnings now almost at the same time that they're being issued. So that argues that maybe you don't need to have a you know, really long lead time. In the past, I would have argued the longer lead time, the more likelihood that people are going to to get it. But I think probably 13 minutes may be a little bit on the short side. Not every tornado gets a 13 minute lead time, but uh, somewhere in the 20 to 30 minute range probably is about right. An hour may be too long in in some cases, and then there becomes the whole issue if if you've got a metropolitan, the whole other can of worms, if you've got a metropolitan area, what should people do? If you start having people try to leave, you create a traffic jam. Yeah, and we've, we've seen that and, in and, the previous uh, events. And um, puts people at yeah, greater risk absolutely. than if they had gone to the lowest, innermost portion of a sturdy building. So yeah. there's... There's all sorts of issues, maybe a topic for another yeah, day along that line. Yeah, I think that's going to be
0: uh, where I'm writing a note down that we need to have that conversation because what do you do? I think there are really a lot of um, sort of challenges in terms of whether people should get on the road, stay at home, stay out on the road, should they get under an underpass? Probably not. Uh, so there are all kinds of things that we will say for a different yeah. day. Uh, Dr. Forbes, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepherd from the University of Georgia.